Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. So now let's look uh, at step three, Uh, understanding uh, the impact of my suffering. Uh, You know, the question, what are these invisible injuries uh, that I've suffered? Uh, Invisible injuries is uh, the way that many many military veterans have come to understand the experience of post-traumatic stress. You know, there's some of their buddies that come home and, and they're missing an arm or they've got a scar. Uh, And then others who go, you know, I look fine, but something got broken. Uh, And they'll call that the invisible injury. And and from that, we can begin to see that scars and casts, as painful as they are, have advantages. Uh, They can be seen. Uh, When trauma can't be seen, it's unknown, uh, and therefore oftentimes its influence is unacceptable. And not just by other people. By us, we look at ourselves and go, why can't I just get over this? Why can't I just move on? Why, this is in the past. Why can't I just get it to leave me alone? And this is where Diane Langberg says, any treatment approach that is not predicated upon a basic comprehension of the nature of trauma uh, and what it does to the human beings will be ineffective and possibly harmful. Too often, The survivor is seen by herself and others as nuts, crazy, or weird unless her responses are understood in the context of trauma. And one of the main goals of this step is to help you understand the impact of trauma so that you feel less crazy. And so one of the things that we would look at is the stages of identity as it relates to trauma. I mean, when significant things happen, we kind of take on a new identity. And so when I finish school, I become a graduate. When I get married, I become a spouse. When I have a child, I become a parent. You know, this is one of those kind of big life-defining before and after moments when I experience a trauma. What am I now? It feels like something uh, that marks us. Uh, And I'll give us three stages in the way that we relate to the experience of trauma. And the first of those may make us a little uncomfortable, and it's victim. And I don't mean victim with any pejorative tone, not playing the victim card. But victim means I need help. It means I deserve justice. And there's a time period when That accurately describes what we've experienced. And then after that, uh, we become a survivor. Life isn't normal again. It still feels like there's a whole lot that's off and wrong, and I don't understand what's going on in my experience. But I've still got to function in day-to-day ways, and I, I am just surviving and holding on. And then I become a steward. I get to a point in processing this experience that I feel like this experience is available for me to pick up 
when it is useful for somebody else to encourage me, I can share with them what's happened so they can encourage me. Or it might allow me to encourage and come along somebody else. Uh, That would be uh, the stewardship phase. And so the kind of questions that I would ask you uh, is which of these best represent where you are now? And when you think about if you're at one of the second or third, how healthily did you manage that passage from one stage to the other? Might you need to go back and give yourself a little more grace uh, for the way that that was? Uh, And then how would you grow from one to the other? Now, in terms of understanding the impact, There's a lot of factors uh, that can influence how much impact uh, a trauma has. Now, here's my warning label on this. Whenever I give factors for impact, we tend to do suffering math. And so what we do is we hear, okay, there's like 10 things here, and then so I got like five of them. That means if somebody else has got 10, their suffering's like 50% worse than mine. So why why am I whining about this? Here's my reply to that. Suffering is not a competitive sport. Just because somebody else got hit by a truck doesn't mean my knee surgery hurts any less. We are not competing with God for His compassion as if it were in limited supply and He's going, man, I just got a bunch of whiny people. Uh, I don't know why they keep praying about me thing. Don't they know about these people who are like uh, in awful situation? It But oftentimes, when we see things like this, that's what we tend to do with it. And so don't do that with these factors. But here's some of the things. The intensity of the trauma you experienced. What was the level of pain? What was the expectation of death? What was the level of exposure to environment? I'm sorry, to violence? This is where Judith Herman would say, the most powerful determinant of psychological harm and the character of a traumatic event is is the size of that event. Individual personality characteristics count little in the face of overwhelming events. There is a simple, direct relationship between the severity of the trauma and its psychological impact. Whether that impact is measured in terms of number of people affected or the intensity and duration of harm. And so these first three are really just ways of of getting at that. So intensity, duration, and frequency are ways of measuring size. Uh, And so duration. Uh, The longer a trauma lasts, the more futile it is to think that it's ever going to change. And we'll come back to that again with the fifth criteria here in a moment, but we can just give up. I mean, it's one thing if our trauma lasts for you know, three minutes when we're being held up at gunpoint in a parking lot and somebody's taking our belongings and they run off with it and we have that moment of staring down the barrel of a gun wondering if a bullet's going to come out of it and then it's over very quickly. It's another thing if you're being trafficked for three years uh, and this has become much more of a way of life. Uh, The frequency of trauma. Again, the more times it comes and relents, if you think about a child who lives in an abusive environment for an extended period of time, and this is, this is just what they know. Uh, you know, the duration and frequency, they greatly contribute to that sense of powerlessness. Uh, the age when a ex- uh, trauma is experienced. You know, we can only process a trauma 
with the level of cognitive and emotional maturity that we have at the time that we go through it. And so one of the exercises that Diane Lingberg uh, is uh, fond of giving to people who were abused as children uh, is she'll advise them to go to a playground and watch children who were the age that they were when they were abused. And just ask them, what do you notice? What stands out? And invariably, of what is noticed is they're so small. They're so innocent. They couldn't possibly know what to do in the situation that I went through. But this person, they experienced it at that age, and they've spent the rest of their life trying to figure out what it was they should have done. And so, it's as if they've matured trying to figure it out, and they don't give themselves the benefit of the doubt of having been six or seven or eight years old uh, at the time. Uh, Passivity in your response to the trauma. That is not at all uh, to assign blame in any way. But when we give up, uh, it is a, it's an aspect of surrendering voice, uh, of surrendering volition, uh, and it, uh, it's, a, it's a harder injury uh, to come back from at that point. Uh, your emotional stability uh, prior to the trauma. I mean, one of the ways that we define trauma is that it's more than you were prepared to go through at the time that you went through it. Well, at the time, could be your chronological age, as we were just talking about. Or it could be the number of other significantly stressful events that you were going through. I mean, when somebody says, Ah, my my mother was dying of cancer, and my kids were um, getting in trouble and having a hard time at school, and then that's when I found out my spouse was being unfaithful. Uh, The context of when that happened and what was going on right before contributes to how prepared we were to go through it at that time. The reaction of loved ones. Um, You know, when you talked about this or tried to talk about it, things like not being believed, silence, minimizing, or putting the blame back on you, uh, those are all things that compound uh, the impact of trauma. Um the violation of trust associated with that trauma. Again, whether it is the trauma was at the hands of somebody you should have been able to trust, uh, that's why being abused by a parent uh, is more traumatizing than being abused uh, by somebody that I don't know because there's a greater bond of trust, or even if it's some other form of trauma and I share it with somebody that I should be able to, Uh, to trust, like a a parent or a spouse, and I am not believed or minimized, uh, that increases it. Uh, The broader social reaction, uh, if I come home from war and people are protesting the war, or there's just social silence on the issue that impacted me in another way. The number of post-traumatic hardships created, uh, that could be a disability, a job loss, uh, the death of a loved one, Uh, Any of those kinds of things are going to increase um, the impact. Significant events associated with the trauma. You know, maybe it's a house burning down at Christmas. uh, Or 
uh, having a child or a loved one die in a car accident at the corner next to your house and every time you come home, you see that spot and remember it. Uh, Or your interpretation of the trauma. Now that's what we're going to get to in steps 4 through 5. But the meaning we place on these events uh, greatly impacts the way that they uh, impact us. Now we ask the question, what types of impact could we expect? Uh, And I give you a a Bible study there in the larger notebook. There's lots of Bible studies like that embedded in the study that you go through. Here, uh, just talking about a tension between two passages. Uh, Obviously, both passages are in Scripture, so they're true. But there's a tension between them uh, that I think is important for us to consider in light of trauma. Uh, Proverbs 14.10 is where it says, uh, only the heart knows its own bitterness. Meaning when I get hurt, I know that experience in a way that, that is very difficult for anybody else to understand. At the same time, then we have 1 Corinthians 10.13 that says, uh, we are not tempted in any way that is not common to man. That, that it's like everybody kind of goes through the same things. And I think we need to understand both of those in order to rightly relate to the types of impact that uh, trauma can have. There's a side of this experience that's going to be very difficult for us to communicate to somebody else, and they're not necessarily going to be able to crawl inside of our soul and feel what we feel in that moment. At the same time, that does not preclude anybody from having enough understanding to be helpful and to speak words of hope into what we're going through. And so what are some of the types of impact uh, that we would experience? Uh, flashbacks. Uh, it, it's when the five senses revolt on me. Uh, I no longer feel like I'm in control of my own life and mind. At any moment, it's as if somebody can come in and change the program in my head and... The whole matrix just changed when, when that loud sign went, siren went off or, or something like that. Uh, the lens of extremity. It's harder to gauge normal hurt after a trauma. It just, it feels like the cost of being wrong is too large. And so, I tend to err on the side of caution, and that means seeing things as bigger than they are so that I can make sure I'm safe, and everybody calls me a drama queen or a drama king, and I I get sick of that, but they don't understand. Um, The loss of voice. I say no, and it doesn't stop. Or I ask the question, who would I talk to about this? Why would I talk about this? Who would want to hear what happened? And and I feel like I don't have any voice. Uh, Double think. Uh, Living in two conflicting worlds at the same time. So if you think about the child who's been abused. In their world, they have parents who teach them to obey their teachers, not to hit their brother, uh, and they shouldn't lie. Who teaches them what is right and wrong? Their parents. If their parents 
don't care for them. How scary is their world? It's awful. At the same time, my parents do horrendous things to me. There's no other word I can call this but evil. And so I have to live where both of these things are true at the same time. Do you see that idea of fragmentation? Where and sometimes I've just got to live as this part of the story is true, and at other times I live as if this part of the story is true, and I just I get in this habit of double think. And I don't feel like I have a choice. My life just demands it. Or similarly, uh, ambivalence. Feeling two strong conflicting emotions about the same thing. And so maybe when I'm around people, I want nothing more than just to be alone and by myself so that I don't have all of this unpredictable stuff coming at me that I don't know how to say or respond to what's going on. And then when I get by myself, the silence, it just drives me crazy. I don't feel like I know what to do with it. And so I long to be alone and I'm scared to death to be alone. Or as Diane Lingberg says, many survivors have a deep fear of intimacy uh, and commitment while simultaneously longing for closeness. This ambivalence causes a push and pull effect that vacillates between idealizing and devaluing others. I put people on pedestals and I tear down. I just give blind trust and get really close really fast. And when I get hurt, I pull away. That's that's kind of the effect of ambivalence uh, and doublethink. And then there's Stunted emotional growth. You know, there's a test-taking strategy that most of us learned uh, in school, and it works really well in an academic environment for tests. And that is, if you come to a question and you don't know the answer, you skip it, you answer all of the other ones you know, you hope that triggers something that you remember, or if not, at least you give more time to the questions that you know what to do with. you remember this test-taking strategy? Okay. And so we think, that's what I'll do with my emotions. It works with tests, it'll work with emotions. I'll just skip this one, I'll put it on mute, and I'll come back to it whenever it is I figure out what I'm supposed to do with that. But I think what Diane Lingberg says is true. A funny thing about emotions is that if you deaden yourself to one side, the other goes with it. If you want to feel joy, you will have to deal with grief. If you want to feel love, you will have to face fear. As you begin to feel and struggle with emotions long dead, hold on tightly to the fact that surely as you pass through the painful ones, so you will eventually come out on the other side. But one of the impacts of emotions when we just decide, I don't know what to do with that, so I'm going to turn it off, that stunts our emotional growth. To where we just we don't grow and mature in a balanced way uh, from that point forward. A shattered sense of self. Who am I now? I mean, I've got this very unwanted event that I now measure life as kind of before trauma, after trauma. What do I do with that? Uh, Reenactments. I mean, what do you do when you lose something or you can't figure out what it is that you need to do? You kind of retrace your steps and you go back through it Oftentimes when we go through a trauma and we don't know what in the world it was that we were supposed to, we keep retracing our steps, whether it just be cognitively and emotionally or whether it's physically putting ourselves in similar situations, trying to figure out what it is that we could have done. 
um, being excessive or dismissive towards planning. That just comes to how we deal with control. Uh, deterioration of problem-solving skills. Uh, when our emotions are raw and our sense of trust uh, is, is a bit erratic in the way that we've talked about, problem-solving skills are hard. Uh, self-harm, uh, whether this be cutting or other behaviors, uh, this is one that oftentimes doesn't even make sense to the person who's doing it. Uh, but there's often two things in play here when somebody's engaging in self-harm behaviors after a trauma. One is um, they like the opiate relief that comes with it. Uh, opiates are the natural painkillers in, uh, in our brain that go off, and when we inflict a significant injury, our brain releases opiates. And so, in the experience of pain, we kind of realize there's some kind of like peace or relief that we get in the midst of that. Um, and so, it's not as if the person understands that. They, you ask them, why do you cut yourself? I don't know. It just kind of makes things feel better. Uh, a second thing that somebody may be doing in that situation uh, is triggering a dissociative uh, response. If you remember, we talked about it kind of creating that mental separation from the moment. Uh, what often happens to somebody... Uh, who is, especially when they've experienced prolonged trauma, is they realize that if this is the threshold of dissociation, and as things get bad, they eventually cross that threshold, and then they get better. But then when they're not in an abusive, traumatic environment, and things are just normal bad, they don't know how to go down, and things get better. They get here, and the only way that they know to get relief is to keep pushing it to where it gets worse, and I get relief that way. And so, engaging in this destructive behavior or conflict pattern in a way to try to get those forms of relief. And then finally, uh, depression. And in many ways, that's just the emotional exhaustion of wrestling with all the things that we've talked about. Um, Now, as we're at the end of this, uh, and we ask, uh, what should I expect at this point in my journey? At this point in your journey, if you're working through the materials, this may be where it feels worse. Because you're getting to know it and you're paying attention to it a bit better. Um, But it also should be making more sense to you. To where you begin to go, this, it hurts worse, but I feel less crazy. And I feel like if I understand it, I can begin to do some things with it. And so let's take that uh, and go into uh, step four. Uh, 